Our New Testament reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we no longer do so. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. So great to be with you. Glad that you're here. And uh, as you know, if you've been heard, heard the announcements, we are moving into the Lenten season and beginning this Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, which is a very special and unique service. It'll be here. Um, I hope that you can make that. Um, and I want to take some time uh, this morning to sort of set up the next seven sermons in a row that will be during Lent. And we're going to really pick apart the passage that um, Ellen just read for us um, in the coming weeks, but I want to be a little bit less exegetical this morning and share with you some of the things that have been on my heart for myself uh, as well as for in town. And I think that uh, these 11 verses give us the opportunity to talk about them. So this week may be a little bit different than what you're used to and also what's in store during Lent. I came up with this title, Compelled, back in the late summer, um, but we're not going to get to that part until uh, later in March. We're going to spend seven Sundays on, actually eight, on, on this particular passage. And I want to talk about the question that sort of lingers over or sets up this passage, and that is the question that most of us are here to find out, here to ask, here to get answered, and that is, what is God really like? wanted to tackle something very easy this morning, but we're implicitly asking that each and every Sunday here at InTown and everything that we do, what is God really like? But more explicitly during Lent, we want to ask and hopefully answer that question from a lot of different perspectives. So there's no time like the present to 
invite your friends and invite your neighbors. This is a question that is on people's minds, whether they're Christians or not. So as we enter into this time of reflection, let me pray for us. Father, we want to ask big things of you, and we want to expect big things of you because you are powerful, and we know that you have a heart for this world that is burning with love. And we want to access that, not only for ourselves, but for our neighbors, for our family, for our city, and for the world. And so, Lord, we want to pray that InTown would have not a tiny piece of that, but a big piece of that. And I pray that as we take time during this Lenten season leading up to Easter to reflect upon who we are and who you are, Lord, I pray that you would refresh us, that you would renew us that you would give life to dry bones, both individually and corporately. I pray that we would perhaps look back upon this season, uh, later on this year, later on in life, as a season in which you ignited a flame of repentance as well as joy, where our spiritual lives took on a new shape, a new passion, new vitality. And Lord, I pray that for each of us here each of us as individuals, and I pray that for InTown, not only so that we could be more passionate and more alive, but that we could grant and give that life to others. So, Lord, would you ignite us, and we pray as we reflect upon this text that you would grant us insight, grant us hearing ears and seeing eyes, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when people are looking at the Corinthian letters, and I sent this to you over email, if you're on our email list, you got this uh, set up this week. But this is the part, uh, and maybe part of chapter 4 as well, that people really spend a great deal of time on, that they write dissertations on. There's many, many articles that try to pick apart this particular part of Second Corinthians. Not only is there this really rich, complicated Greek text, but it's asking big questions and it's answering big questions. What is the nature of God? What is He really like? What is it like to know Him? What is His disposition towards us? And what is the meaning of the cross, which is especially relevant as we move into the Easter season? So as I said, we're going to spend eight weeks starting now with what could be considered our foundational reflection, and that is, is God for us? Is God for us or is He against us? What is His fundamental disposition towards us? Isn't that question implied in this passage? Isn't that question, I hope, present in each of your minds as we entered into this building this morning, whether or not you consider yourself a Christian? That's one of the big questions we're seeking to answer each and every week. What is God's disposition? What is His fundamental nature is He for us or is He against us? We've emerged from what is without doubt one of the most contentious elections that any of us can remember. And as you drove around the city, you saw bumper stickers and placards and pins on people's shirts and yard signs that were talking about, this is the person that I endorse for the highest office in the land. And the Christian artist Sarah Groves got me thinking about this idea of endorsement. What is endorsement? And what are those signs saying? When you put a yard sign, a yard sign in your yard, you're saying that this home endorses this candidate. I'm with her, or I'm with him, or I'm for her, I'm for him. 
What I want you to think about this morning and what I want you to think about this season is that in sending Jesus, that God has put a sign in each of our yards, that he has put a sign in your yard endorsing you, that he is saying by that that he is fundamentally for you. Now hold that thought a minute because I can imagine all of the little arguments that you're having with me in your head because you've some of you have read a lot of theology that says some very different things about God. What about that person? What about all the parts of humanity that are unendorsable? What about what the Bible says about sin and fallenness? And what about me? And that's the real question, isn't it? There's a healthy dose of narcissism in most of our theologies. We want to know, what does God think about us? What does He think about me? But it's a very legitimate question to ask, and it's one I want us to keep asking this Lenten season. When you are alone, when you are quiet, when you are with yourself and your own thoughts, not posturing for others, not saying what you think you should say, deep down, what do you believe God thinks about you? What do you believe about yourself? That what is God's fundamental relationship with you? What is His disposition toward you? Or maybe the bigger question that really answers that one is, what is God really like? Because how we answer that question individually, how we answer that question corporately really dictates how we live, for it describes the God that we give ourselves over to each and every Sunday. Now, some of you know we are a Reformed church, and what that means is that we trace our theological heritage to the time of the Reformation, and at least partially through Martin Luther in Germany, but then more fundamentally through the Reformation in Switzerland and then later in Britain and in Scotland. And I ask you to hold on to this thought a moment ago of what is God like? Is it still there? Is that question still present? Because as we think about being a Reformed church, a Reformed people, this question, this chapter really plays to some of our greatest strengths as well as our greatest weaknesses. One of our strengths as a Reformed church is that we're serious about doctrine. If you go downstairs in my office, you'll see a lot of big books, and they have big words in them. And I've read some of them, and they're about doctrine. And a lot of them have to do with this doctrine of sin. And we've never really soft-pedaled this at in-town or in the Reformed tradition. We're serious about sin, and we should be. This idea that humanity is in need of a Savior is something that we take for granted, that we preach upon, that we think is true. As Herman Melville says in Moby Dick, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are, we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Humanity is lost without a Savior, and we really believe that here. But some corners of the church, and maybe this corner is plain in your brain, has taken this assessment of human fallibility and brokenness and fallenness, and we've exaggerated it. We've turned it up to 11. Not only are we souls in need of mending, people who can't possibly earn the favor of God, who can't merit His approval, 
But we turn that up to 11 and we make it so that we are fundamentally repulsive to God. This is very prevalent in Puritan thinking who are the heirs of the Reformation in Britain and Scotland and who really set the tenor and the tone of American theology in the American founding. Anyone remember reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards in high school? Almost all of us read that, whether we're Christians or not. Do you remember this line? God holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over fire. He abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. That's one of the sermons that almost everyone in our country has read. That informs a lot of our theology because Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest theologians. And in his defense, that doesn't represent his entire theology, and every sermon he has written is not like that. But it does represent something fundamental about how he thought about God and how many of us do. And this is far more than human fallibility. This is far more than just you are sinful in need of a Savior. This is beyond something is wrong with you to everything is wrong about you. And so it means when we hear these glorious snippets of the gospel, summaries of the gospel, like you are far worse than you could ever dare hope, but you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare dream, We believe the first part, but we really are dubious about the second. We have a hard time believing that we are more loved and accepted than we could possibly dream. Friends, what I want you to hear this morning, and I want you to hear throughout the Lenten season, is that you are loved. Full stop. No qualification. You are loved by God. And I got the order right. It's not reversed. That you are loved and therefore God dies for you. That's the right order. Many of us would like to argue the point. Maybe you need it to be reversed in your personal life. That Christ died for me and therefore I am loved. And that God loves some sort of legal fiction that because you are covered by Christ, therefore and only because of that, you are loved. What the Bible indeed says is that you are loved and therefore Christ died for you. One of the most powerful and unsettling shows on TV, I don't think they still make it anymore, but it's in syndication if you want to watch it. It's called Intervention. And it's stories of families where one person in the family is addicted And it's tearing the family apart, and it's leading this person uh, towards the doorstep of death. And the climax of each show is the family confronting the addict about the pattern of behavior, and they are putting the relationship on the line. Most of the families also have to overcome some kind of enabling behavior. Their love for this person has created this relationship where they act dishonestly and oftentimes empower this addict. 
But with the help of the counselor, they have this intervention, and they're finally able to say that this relationship cannot continue as is, and I'm willing to suffer the consequences of your rejection of me because of this and because I love you. They're willing to do something very painful in order to facilitate that person's health and the health of the family. They love the person so they act. They love the person before that person renovates their life and gets clean and sober. They act. They put themselves in a position of weakness in order to show their love. Their love compels them to address the things that are harmful and detrimental. They act because they loved. What does Paul tell us in this passage? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after you get clean, not after you get your life put back together, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. God doesn't love you because Christ died for you and you are now covered by His righteousness. He doesn't love simply a legal fiction. Christ died for you because He loves you and now you are covered by His righteousness. Maybe you're arguing with me in your brain. I can see the look on some of your faces. This is not what I've heard before in Sunday school. But I want you to believe it. I want you to believe that it's true. Christ died for you, and now you are covered because He loves you. For Christ's love compels us, Paul says here, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And God, verse 19, was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Paul's being a little reckless here, isn't he? Isn't he being a little bit too loose with God's love? We've got to rein this in, Paul. People are going to get the wrong idea. And this is what George Bernard Shaw thought, even if it were mentally possible for all of us to believe in the atonement, we should have to cry it off, because if we are able to load a scapegoat with my sins, I should be less careful how I committed them if I knew that they would cost me nothing. But Paul says emphatically, God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That sounds a little bit different than sinners in the hands of an angry God, doesn't it? And it probably sounds a little bit different than your internal monologue, which is the most important conversation that you have every day. Paul asks us in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, us. We can be against us. We can be against ourselves. We can tie ourselves down with this theology that starts with God's displeasure rather than His emphatic love. Maybe I'm preaching to myself up here. Maybe you're not infected with this pathology as I am, thinking about myself, first of all, through the lens of God's displeasure rather than His emphatic love. Here, Edwards, again, 
There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. Well, Edwards is right in that the Bible does talk a lot about anger and a lot about wrath and a lot about judgment. And we're going to get to that as we go through this series. And we can't just make God up as we go along. We can't just fabricate God as we want Him to be. We have to deal with how God has revealed Himself in the Bible. As we do with any honest relationship, we let that person tell us who they are, tell us their story. But what if God is really like Jesus? Now, don't answer too quickly, because it seems like a pretty obvious question, doesn't it? Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, but is it that obvious? Edwards, Edwards' God, at least as described in this sermon, doesn't sound a whole lot like I've come to know Jesus in the Gospels. Do you remember the woman in the Gospels who had suffered through the 12 years, years of bleeding? And Jesus was making his way through her town. And she thought, huh, I wonder if he could help me. She was having this internal monologue with herself. And she began to ask, am I willing to put myself in jeopardy of social scorn because I'm a woman trying to touch a rabbi? Am I willing to do that? Do I believe enough that He has grace for me? Do I believe that His character is fundamentally for me, a sick woman? I wonder what would happen if I touched Him. I wonder what would happen if maybe if I just touched His cloak, His garment. Is He really full of grace? Maybe that's our question this morning. Can I really be healed? Can God be trusted with my future? Am I loved? Fundamentally, does God endorse me as a person? Is Jesus really what God is like? Is Jesus your access point, your starting point for accessing God? Is Jesus your interpretive lens when you come across some of those difficult places in the Bible that I wrestle with, that you wrestle with, that does talk about God's anger and His wrath? Do you then reflect upon the nature and the person and the story and life of Jesus and then say, okay, how does this fit? Do you walk through the difficult parts of your life? and say, is Jesus fundamentally trustworthy? Is He good? Is He full of grace? If I just touch Him, will I be healed, at least in some way? I wrestle with these difficult parts of the Bible that paint God as vindictive and full of wrath and anger. But I do know that Jesus healed a woman who asked herself a question, and said, I'm going to take a risk and reach out and touch him. And I know that the Bible tells us when we see Jesus, we see God. 
Now, if you're here searching and questioning this morning, start from there. And don't move beyond it. There's a lot of things you can add to that, but we never go beyond the fact that Jesus is a representative. He is God Himself, and He represents God's basic fundamental character. And He is full of grace and full of compassion. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, like I have often been in my spiritual journey, and your mind is cluttered with all of these complicated things, all of these things that you're supposed to believe about God, the things that you're supposed to defend, but you've forgotten Jesus, and you've forgotten who He is, and you've built this edifice, this theological system that you have to shoehorn into the life and story and graciousness of Jesus rather than building a theology based upon the presumption of touching the seam of His garment. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God places a sign in your yard, friends, and it says, I love this person. I endorse this person. And that in no way gives us a free reign to live as we want. It doesn't endorse those behaviors that are destructive to ourselves and to our relationship with Him and to one another. But He says, fundamentally, I am passionately in love with this person, and my love will never run dry. I'm with Him. I'm with her. I'm for Him. I'm for her. And I believe there's nothing more important for each of us to hear this morning. That He is loving you well, even when you're unlovable. He endorses you even when you are unendorsable. Let's end there and let's pray. God, we pray that in all of the ways that we should be careful... (laughs) in all of the ways that we should moderate our thoughts, our words, that we would not moderate them here, that we would not be careful with our words about how great your love is because you disclose yourself as being love incarnate, as being fundamentally loving. Lord, I pray that we would settle in upon that And as we reflect upon all of the ways this Lenten season that we don't reflect that love, that we don't give that love back to you, that we don't love each other, I pray that we would, in an unwavering way, cling to the love that you say over and over throughout the Bible that you have for us. I pray that I would believe it. I pray that we would believe it. Lord, be with us this season. In Jesus' name, amen.